Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do keep that page open during the sermon so we can all look closely at what God is saying to us in his word. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God's spirit to be at work among us. When the prophet Samuel was a boy serving in the temple, he heard God calling his name and he said to God, Speak, for your servant is listening. Father, we want to make Samuel's words our own this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In 2010, the Free Church of Scotland faced a major decision. The Free Church of Scotland is, is a small Presbyterian denomination with about 8,000 members in just over 100 churches spread all over Scotland. Ever since 1905, the only singing in Free Church of Scotland churches had been 
unaccompanied psalm singing. In other words, they only sang Old Testament psalms without any musical instruments at all. But on the 18th and 19th of November in 2010, the Free Church of Scotland held an assembly to decide whether or not to change that position. It was far from clear what the result would be. The Board of Trustees was in favour of the status quo, in favour of keeping things just as they have been since 1905. An article in a national newspaper, The Guardian, argued it would be a major cultural loss to Scotland and to Britain if this unique musical tradition were to cease. And the ultimate outcome of the vote was tight, with 98 representatives on one side and 84 representatives on the other. I'll tell you which side won later. But here's a question for us to think about. If you had been one of the representatives at that assembly, how would you have approached that decision about sung worship? How would you have thought about that decision? Would you have thought mainly about your own preferences, the kind of sung worship you want to take part in? Or would you have thought about how God himself wants to be worshipped? Psalm 50 teaches us that when it comes to worship, which is more than what we do in church on Sunday, it's what we do with our whole life, when it comes to worship, we need to pay careful attention to what God himself actually wants. That's the theme of Psalm 50. And that might sound rather obvious. When it comes to worship, we need to pay careful attention to what God himself actually wants. But the more you think about it, the more probing and challenging it gets. When it comes to worship, we need to pay careful attention to what God himself actually wants. The psalm is split into three sections, and each section is about worship. We can see that because each section includes the words sacrifice. There it is in verse 5, verse 14, and in the third section it is in verse 23. The background to the psalm is that God has a problem with the sacrifices his people have been offering. You can see that in verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. There's a disconnect between the worship of God's people and the worship God actually wants. Well, that is a very unsatisfactory situation, isn't it? And so in this psalm, God teaches his people what true worship is all about. We'll go through the psalm section by section, beginning with verses 1 through 6. True worship is not ignorant, but informed. That's our heading for verses 1 through 6. True worship is not ignorant, but informed. The action of Psalm 50 takes place in a courtroom. It's a gigantic courtroom capable of holding the entire population of the world. In verse 1, God summons the earth, meaning all the people of the earth. 
And verse 6 reveals that he will be sitting in the judge's seat. Now, human judges have considerable power, but nothing compares with the power of this judge. Verse 3 says, Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. Imagine you're in a courtroom, you're the defendant on trial. When the bailiff calls out, all rise, someone opens a door for the judge. But before the judge comes through the door, fire bursts through it. An onrush of flames singeing the eyebrows of the people in the front row. Then the judge enters, surrounded by whirling tornadoes with thunderbolts and flashes of lightning. What would you think? What would the jury think? What would the lawyers think? Everyone would think this is a judge to be feared. The judge like that, there's no haggling or bargaining. You do what the judge says. So what does the terrifying judge of Psalm 50 say to the world? In verses 4 and 5, he makes a distinction between his people and the rest of the world. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. By his people, God means Israel, as we can tell from verse 7. The distinction between God's people and the rest of the world is a core feature of true worship. When God looks out on the world, he sees insiders and outsiders. You might say, that's so divisive. Why does God have to split the world between insiders and outsiders? We'll see the reason in a moment. But first, let's not forget who we're dealing with here. Before him is a devouring fire, around him is a mighty tempest. On one level, the proper response to a God like that is to say, if that's the way God wants it, so be it. He's God. If true worship means becoming an insider instead of an outsider, then count me in. On one level, that is a very sensible approach to take with God. Before him is a devouring fire and around him is a mighty tempest. As Paul says in Romans chapter 9, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? That the God of the Bible, although, although he is very much a God to be feared, is also a God who explains himself. And in the second line of verse 5, we find the reason why this insider-outsider distinction is necessary for true worship. God is talking about his people, his faithful ones, there in verse 5, and he says, They made a covenant with me by sacrifice. What's a covenant? A covenant is a relationship-making deal. Covenants were very popular in the ancient Middle East. In those days, you couldn't put in a 911 call to the police because there was no police. And so you had to rely on a network of relationships with the surrounding tribes and clans. Well, those relationships needed to be solid and trustworthy. And that's where covenants came in. Covenants were the deals underpinning relationships. They had terms and conditions. If you broke a covenant, you'd face serious consequences. 
Although we don't hear the word covenant very much anymore, covenants are still a feature of modern life. Marriage is a covenant. It's a relationship-making deal to have and to hold until death do us part. A relationship-making deal. And when a nation signs a treaty with another nation, that's a covenant. If Ukraine had signed a treaty with America and the other NATO countries, American troops would most likely be on the ground now in Ukraine fighting against Russia. I'm not saying Ukraine is at fault for being outside of NATO. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if it had been inside NATO, the situation now would be different because treaties, covenants, are relationship-making deals. Where there's a treaty, there's a relationship obliging the nations who have signed up to spring into action. Well, if we feed all of that into verse 5, we discover something extraordinary. The God of verse 3, with fire surging forth in front of him and a tempest surrounding him, that God is willing to sign a treaty with human beings. He's willing to make a covenant with the likes of us. And since a covenant is a relationship-making deal, that means human beings can have a relationship with God, can be in relationship with the Creator God. We can be on good terms with Him. Verse 5 helps us understand why God looks out on the world and sees insiders and outsiders. Relationship with God has to be underpinned by a covenant. We have to agree to the treaty God offers. We need to be informed about it so that we can sign up, so that we can say, yes, please, yes to that. In our own period of salvation history, God offers covenant relationship with himself through his son, Jesus. And Jesus shows us just how eager God is to enter into relationship with you and with me. The Son of God left the glory of heaven to be born as a man. He lived a life of perfect obedience, and when he died on the cross, he offered himself as a sacrifice, his blood instead of ours. Covenant relationship with God requires sacrifice. We see that in the second line of verse 5, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And on the cross, Jesus provided the necessary sacrifice. Without it, we could never have had relationship with God. It's because Jesus was punished in our place, receiving the punishment we deserved. It's only because of that sacrifice that people like you and me can enter God's presence and enjoy relationship with him forever. If you're listening today as someone who's not yet following Jesus, it's so good you're listening because you are now informed. You can become a true worshipper. Please enter into relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Say yes to the treaty God generously and lovingly offers.
Let's now move on to the next section of the psalm, verses 7 through 15. The heading we'll give to this section is, True worship is not transactional, but thankful. By transactional, I mean the kind of worship where we think, if I do X, God will have to do Y. In a store, if I pay money for a product, I fully expect to get that product. And in this section of the psalm, there are clear signs that the Israelites have been taking that kind of transactional approach in their worship of God. We may find as we dig into Israel's mistake here, that it's a mistake we've also been making. We can tell things aren't as they should be from verse 7, where God says he's going to testify against Israel. Something has gone wrong. To begin with, God clarifies that he doesn't have a problem with the outward form of Israel's worship. Every day the Israelites had to sacrifice two lambs as burnt offerings, one in the morning, one in the evening, and that's been happening. In verse 8, God acknowledges your burnt offerings are continually before me. The problem is with the inner attitude that the Israelites have when they make those sacrifices and other sacrifices. They've been assuming that God somehow personally needs them. Take a look at verses 12 and 13. God says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Who do you think I am? God is saying to his people. Do you think if I don't get my burnt offerings from you, I'll start feeling faint and shaky at 3 p.m.? Why in the world would you think that along those lines, when, verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills? It seems the Israelites have absorbed the religious attitudes of the neighboring peoples. According to the customary way of thinking at that time, if you did certain things for your God, your God would do certain things for you. Because according to the thinking of that time, among the neighboring nations, their gods had needs that had to be met. And when those needs were met, their gods would do things for their worshippers. That's just not how the God of the Bible operates. He's not transactional, he's relational. He reserves the right to answer the prayers of his people in the best possible way, as he sees it, which may not be how we want our prayers answered at the time. Tim Keller puts it like this in his book on prayer. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. The more you meditate on that, the better it gets. God will either give us what we ask, great, or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows, also great. And that's why we can be thankful. That word there, in verse 14, thanksgiving. We can give thanks even when our prayers aren't answered 
in the way we're hoping they will be. We can be thankful because we trust that God is answering our prayers in the best possible way in his sight. A transactional approach to God doesn't yield thankfulness. In a transactional religious system, God either does what he's obliged to do or he fails to do what he's obliged to do. There's not much room for thankfulness either way. But because the God of the Bible is relational and trustworthy and loving, we can offer thanksgiving in all circumstances. Verse 15 teaches us that even in the day of trouble, when everything seems to be going wrong, one thing after another, God will deliver us when we call upon him. Again, it may not be the deliverance we ourselves want at the time, but when we finally know what he knows, we'll glorify him for the deliverance he provided. Call upon me, God says in verse 15, in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Well, let's now move to the third section, verses 16 to the end. True worship is not fraudulent, but faithful. True worship is not fraudulent, but faithful. In this section of the psalm, this third section, verses 16 through 23, God is speaking to a particular group of people. He's still addressing Israelite worshippers, but he now turns his attention to a subset, a group he calls the wicked. There are two things we need to notice about this group. The first is they think they are insiders. Verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Verse 16 is a shocking verse because God is speaking, as it were, to people in church. These wicked people are taking part in Israel's religious assemblies. They will happily say the liturgy along with everyone else, the ancient equivalents of the creed and the Lord's Prayer, but in God's sight, their religious devotion is fraudulent. The second thing to notice about the people in this group is that they're not really obviously wicked. They're not openly committed to wrongdoing. In verse 18, God rebukes them for being pleased with thieves and for keeping company with adulterers. They're not themselves thieves and adulterers, these people God is addressing, looking at verse 18. There's a whole additional category of people further down the road of wickedness, we might say. And so that explains why this group is in church in verse 16, saying all of those spiritual things. They're not really obviously wicked. And yet God calls this group the wicked, which in the Bible is a way of talking about people who are living in rebellion against God. That's why verse 16 is shocking. These people who God categorizes as the wicked, they don't think they fit that category. They think they belong in church, which is why they're in church in verse 16. 
They don't think of their religious commitment as fraudulent, but in God's sight it is. And he patiently explains to them in verses 17 through 21 where they've been going wrong. Before we look at those verses 17 through 21, it's essential to say that the point here isn't that we have to reach a certain standard of goodness to qualify for God's approval. The point isn't that we have to earn enough gold stars in terms of our moral deeds to qualify for eternal life. Absolutely not. As we saw earlier, eternal life is the gift of God. It's received by those who trust in Jesus' offering of himself on the cross as a full and final sacrifice. But what are we saved for? We're saved to serve God. We're saved to give him the whole life worship that he wants. And God empowers his people to give him that worship, to live life his way, heaven's way. God gives us the power we need to live life his way. The lifestyle described in verses 17 through 21 is so different. In practice, this group of people are not serving God. They're not living for him by his power. This group of people might talk the talk back in verse 16, but they don't walk the walk. Verse 17 says they hate discipline and they toss God's words behind them. They may not be thieves or adulterers themselves looking at verse 18, but they give that behavior a cheerful wink. They never gently explain that such behavior is, is wrong in God's sight. Looking at verse 19, instead of reining in their tongues, they let the reins hang slack saying whatever they want. The word frames in verse 19 could be translated harnesses, which makes that verse a memorable two-part proverb. It pictures the wicked person's tongue as a horse, a kind of horse, allowed to run free, only to end up more uncomfortably harnessed than it was to begin with. Isn't that so often what happens? A person with loose speech tells comfortable lies, convenient lies, only to find those lies tie them up in difficulties they would never otherwise have faced. Let the reins loose on your tongue and you'll end up harnessed to difficulties. Verse 20 gives another example of loose speech, calmly trashing someone else's reputation, even a family member's reputation. Now, if the wicked person stops to think about what God might make of all of this behavior, verse 21 reveals they quickly assure themselves with the thought that God won't mind. God will see things the way they see them, because after all, they say to themselves, God is just like them. But they're wrong about that. God isn't like them. In verse 22, God issues a frightening warning of future judgment with salvation no longer available. Mark this, God says in verse 22, you who forget God. The people in this verse 16 through verse 22 category. Mark this, 
You who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. A time will come when the people of this world who have not entered into saving relationship with God through Jesus will no longer have access to God's deliverance. Please don't let that happen to you. This third section of Psalm 50 may sound harsh to your ears, these verses we've just been looking through. But if we give it some thought, I'm sure we'll agree that it is good that these verses are in the Bible. Remember, these verses are spoken to fraudulent worshippers, people who go through the motions in church without walking the walk outside of church. Think how demoralizing it is to see that kind of hypocrisy. Think how demoralizing it is to see that kind of hypocrisy. People in church talking the talk, not walking the walk outside of church. Think of seeing that as a child or a teenager and how demoralizing that is. In Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, set in the Deep South in the 1930s, there's a scene where a women's missionary circle holds a meeting shortly after the end of the Tom Robinson trial. Tom Robinson, a black man, has been wrongfully convicted by an all-white jury. And Harper Lee shows how the white women belonging to that missionary circle are failing to apply their Christian faith to the injustice perpetrated by their own community. They care more about the needs of black people over in Africa than the need of their own black neighbors for justice. And as we read that scene in Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, we are meant to be horror-struck by the hypocrisy of those Christians, by their failure to walk the walk of their faith. And what we see in verses 16 through 22 is that God himself is horror-struck by Christian hypocrisy. Aren't you glad to have a God like that, who shares that horror? In To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch is the lawyer who represents Tom Robinson at great personal cost. He tells his daughter, Scout, I couldn't go to church and worship God if I didn't try to help that man. I couldn't go to church and worship God if I didn't try to help that man. He gets it. He understands that worship can't be fraudulent. Psalm 50 is the kind of Bible passage that raises up Atticus Finches because it teaches that true worship is not fraudulent, but faithful. That word in verse 5. True worshippers give God the worship he actually wants. Well, I promised earlier that I'd tell you the outcome of the Free Church of Scotland's debate about sung worship in 2010. The winning side was the side in favour of change, the side in favour of singing songs and hymns as well as psalms, the side in favour of letting musical instruments accompany the singing. What persuaded a majority of the delegates to change the way they worshipped? What persuaded them was the argument that 
God himself wants to be worshipped with spiritual songs and hymns and with musical accompaniment because he himself commends those forms of worship in the Bible. That moment in church history back in 2010 shows that worshipping God in the way he wants to be worshipped doesn't cramp our style or kill our joy. It opens up our horizons. It introduces us to life as it is meant to be lived. True worshippers worship God as he wants to be worshipped by the power of his spirit. Putting it more briefly, true worshippers live to please God with his help. Let's bow our heads to pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for informing us, for telling us in your word how you yourself want to be worshipped. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to the ways in which we're not worshipping you as you want. We're not living life the way you want us to live it. Show us, Father, where we are going wrong. And by the strength of your spirit, we pray you would empower us to worship you as you want to be worshipped. We give you thanks and praise for the sacrifice of Jesus, his self-offering, which brings us into this relationship we have with you. Amen.